Okay, if you've got a Bible um, handy, uh, open it up to Romans chapter 13. Now, if you're visiting uh, today, um, we're in the middle of a series uh, working through the letter to the Romans, and uh, we're up to chapter 13, uh, verses 8 to 14. So we'll be looking at this passage in the sermon. Um, But this Romans 13, it's actually a, a chapter that uh, is about our relationship as Christians to the society in which we live. And the first half, we looked at it last week, was about how we relate to um, governing authorities. And today is then how we relate to everyone else um, in the society that we live in. So let's um, hear from God's Word, Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 8 to uh, 14. <clears throat> Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. Uh, Let's pray. We'll ask God to help us understand um, his word. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you, Lord, for your uh, word. Uh, We thank you that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, teaching, training uh, in righteousness uh, so that we can be equipped for every good work. And Father, we uh, need your Spirit to open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your Word. Uh, We need your Spirit also to empower us, Lord, to embrace it and to live it out. And so we ask for his uh, work in us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, interesting things about being a follower of Jesus is that we have this uh, very unique dual citizenship. Now, you know what a dual citizenship is, right? It's, it's when you're a, a citizen of two countries at once. Uh, so, um, you know, we used to have a family here who were citizens of Australia, but also citizens of India. Uh, that's dual citizenship. Uh, But see, Christians have a dual citizenship like no other because we're not only citizens, well, we're not citizens of of two different countries, but actually of two worlds or two ages. Uh, You see, as followers of Christ, we live in this world. You know, we live out our Christian lives in this present age. Now we have a, a home address in this world and we have to live our lives in this world 
But our real home is where? It's not here. Our real home is in the age to come. And so our home here is temporary, but our home to come is eternal. Our home here is still in the, the misery and the, the um, brokenness of sin, but our home to come will be free from all the effects of sin. And so we live in this world, but we belong to the one to come. Uh, we belong to that, that time when Jesus returns, when he renews the world, and then we'll finally be at home with him forever. Now, if that's true, how do we live now? What kind of people should we be in this present age? Now, while we're waiting for Jesus to come, what, what kind of people should we be? How should we relate to the world around us? How should we relate to the society that we live in? And this is something that Christians can often struggle with, especially in a society that increasingly rejects uh, Christian values. Now, we can start to feel real, you know, really out of place in our society today. And so the temptation uh, is really to withdraw, you know, to, to kind of stick to our own, keep a low profile, and just pray that Jesus hurries up and comes back. Now, even if we were to do it that way, which I'm not necessarily encouraging, um, but even if we were to do it that way, we've still got to live in this world. Like we can't, we can't escape that fact. Now, we've still got families in this world and, and, and people that we care about and uh, homes and jobs and responsibilities. So we still have to live in this world. And so the question is, what kind of people should we be? How do we relate to the society around us uh, while we live in this tension of being in this world but really belonging uh, to the one that is to come. And see, that's what this passage is actually all about. Now, admittedly, it doesn't tell us everything about how to live in this present age, but it does tell us three things that are absolutely essential. It tells us that as we live in this world while we belong to the next, we are to be people of love, we are to be people of light, and we are to be people clothed in Christ. Okay, People of love, people of light, people clothed in Christ. So let's look at those three things in this passage. Uh, first, we're to be people of love. And you see that in the first um, paragraph there, verses 8 to 10. It begins by saying, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. And this is where Paul, he's actually continuing the theme from um, verse 7 uh, that was talking about what we owe uh, our governing authorities. You know, we owe taxes, we owe revenue, we owe honour and respect. And now Paul, he kind of expands on that to not just what we owe the government, but what we owe anybody, anyone that we um, come into contact with. And he says we're to owe no one anything. <clears throat> now, sometimes <clears throat> people have sort of taken that and run off in a, on a bit of a tangent and said, you know, oh, that means we should never, ever take on debt. You know, if you need to buy a house, well, too bad. You've got to wait until you've got enough money to buy one. And so we should never take debts. But it's more likely that what it means is that uh, if you do have a debt, that you're someone who doesn't just um, try to weasel your way out of it and never pay it off, but you always pay out your debts. In fact, if you are going to enter into a debt for a home, for example, then you need to make sure that you can afford that. 
Okay, don't be unwise and taking on too much debt that you get yourself into um, big trouble. But anyway, that's not the main point of this um, verse. The main point of this verse is that there is a debt that we all have and it's a debt that we are to continually be paying off, but it's a debt that we never actually finally pay off. A continuing debt that we have, and that is to owe no one anything except, and here it is, the debt to love each other. We owe love to everyone or to each other. Actually, that, that's a question here is, who is this talking about? It says we have this debt to love each other, but who is the each other? Because each other, you know, in a letter to a church, it sounds like it's just talking about fellow Christians and that we have a debt to love each other as fellow Christians. But in Romans, Paul has already talked about love for fellow Christians back in chapter 12. And so it's likely that he's, he, he's talking more broadly here. And in the context... Paul has just talked about our relationship to the governing authorities in the society in which we live. So it fits the context to now see that he's speaking more broadly, each other as in each other in the society we live. Uh, Not only that, but he goes on to talk about loving our neighbour, which is a a very broad uh, uh, broad thing to do. And uh, remember when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbour? Remember what he said? He told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, what does it mean to love your neighbour? It means that whoever you come across who is in need, no matter who they are, no matter how inconvenient it is, you ought to love them, how you ought to help them. That's what it means to love your neighbour. And so when Paul, you know, he says we have a debt to love each other, uh, we to love our neighbour, he's talking about our, our duty towards our fellow man or fellow woman in in society. And now how do we do that though? Because if we have a debt to pay, you know, of love, a debt of love, and then we look at all the people in the society we live, and in the Frankston city there's uh, I think 145,000 people living around us. Now that's a big debt to pay. How on earth are we going to pay that debt? How can we possibly love all of these people around us? Well, to answer that, uh, sometimes theologians talk about something called moral proximity. And moral proximity, it it means that the greater connection you have to a person, the greater the sense of responsibility. So if you you think about all... Sorry. Uh, it's the morning. <clears throat> I have this trouble in the mornings. Uh, sorry about that. <clears throat> now, just think think about all the people that um, are in your life, okay? And when you think about them, there's actually an order of responsibility, a moral proximity, or in this case, a relational um, proximity. And so we could probably put it in um, this order. I mean, it might be a bit different for you, but uh, number one priority, probably your spouse, then your children, uh, then your wider family members, uh, then your friends, perhaps close friends, uh, then your Bible study group, and then your church family, uh, then your workmates, your neighbour, uh, other people down the street in which you live, 
and then everyone else that you come into contact with. See, the, the greater or the closer the relationship, the greater responsibility there is on us to love those people. And that's, that's relational proximity. <clears throat> but then there's also circumstantial proximity. And what I mean by that is that there are circumstances in your life that require you to love other people. So a good example is, um, you know, when you drive on the road and there's all these other road users around you, you have an obligation to love those other road users in the way you drive your car, you know, the way you're courteous, allowing people in to, uh, you know, merging lanes and all those sort of things. It's the same in, in work. Like in your workplace, there's people that you're always with, but then there's other people that you come across as part of your job. You've got an obligation to love those people. And here's another one that we um, probably struggle with a bit. You know, if you ever have to call up a big company like Optus, that Optus, frustrating company. Now, you call them up and eventually <clears throat> you get to a real person and then sometimes it can be frustrating trying to work out a, a difficult situation. But what is this verse telling us? We have an obligation to love that person on the other end of the phone. We might never ever meet them, but circumstantial proximity means that here we are, we're, we're in uh, this connection with them and therefore we have an obligation to love them, you know, to not get frustrated, to not get angry, and so on. <clears throat> and so we're to love every person uh, that we come into contact with. That's our, our obligation as believers. And so it's kind of like um, if you ever have borrowed money off someone and you haven't yet paid it back, you know, every time you see them, instantly you're reminded of that debt that you have. That's actually the way that we're to look at every single person. Every time we see someone, it should remind us of the debt that we have to them, to love them. We owe it to them. Now, a big question then would become, um, what, what does this love actually look like? What does it look like to love other people? Because in one sense, everyone agrees that, you know, we should love everyone, even the Beatles saying, um, all you need is love. So what is this love that should characterize followers of Jesus? And that's what the rest of this, um, these, this paragraph goes on <clears throat> to talk about. Uh, verses 8 to 10. Uh, notice how Paul in these verses, he ties love and law together. And uh, what he does in, in verse 8, he says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he quotes some of the um, some of the Ten Commandments, you know, from the second half of the Ten Commandments, and he sums it up by saying, "You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour." Verse ten. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. <clears throat> now, this is actually very helpful to see how love and law go together, because what what they really are, it's really two ways of looking at the one thing. See, God's law is actually God's guidelines on how to love. So what happens is if you keep God's law, you know, if you live according to the commandments that God gives, what you're essentially doing is loving others. That's why sometimes the Ten Commandments are actually called uh, the law of love. You know, they set out for us <clears throat> how to love God, <clears throat> the first four commandments, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> and then the last six commandments are how to love our neighbour. 
And so to love is actually to fulfill the law. Now, that's not how most people think about uh, love today. Uh, often in our culture, not only is love seen as a feeling rather than, than something we owe, but, but love is often pitted against the law. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Now, in, in verse 9, it talks about uh, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, in, in our culture, it's actually common for people to justify adultery on the basis that it was done out of love. You know, the people say we, we had love for each other. But what we see here is that adultery is never a loving thing, according to God. Uh, in fact, adultery, it always hurts a lot of people. Okay, it always hurts, well, it breaks marriages apart, it ruins families, and then uh, children end up being the ones who, who suffer a lot as well. And so it's never a loving thing to do. In fact, we can even go deeper into the seventh commandment on that one. Because remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that to lust in your heart is to commit adultery, to commit adultery in your heart. And in light of this passage, we realize that uh, lusting after someone is not only sinful, it's also unloving because it's to treat someone like an object. Now, that's, that's one example of how our culture pits law against love. But another example would actually be the ninth commandment, which says, you shall not give false testimony. And uh, it's common to actually justify lying by telling ourselves that to speak the truth could hurt someone. And for people who struggle with people-pleasing, uh, we often tell ourselves that, um, you know, we can't tell people what, what is true. We need to tell people what they, what we think they want to hear or what they think they need to hear rather than actually just saying what's true. But again, it's never loving to go against God's law. It's never loving to lie, right? You can't build a relationship uh, on pretending and being two-faced, you know, saying one thing but really thinking another. That doesn't work. In fact, Ephesians 4.15 actually puts truth and love together. It says we should speak the truth in love. And so we can see that if we want to love others rightly, we actually need God's law as our guide. Uh, without God's law, love just ends up getting twisted into something that becomes the very opposite of love. You know, without, without the law, it's like, um, you know, imagine a bushwalker trying to just walk through the forest with, without a map or without a compass. That's like love without the law. It just goes nowhere. It gets lost. No, no, but the law is the guide. Uh, in fact, one commentator, John Stott, he put it like this. He says, love needs the law for its direction and the law needs, its, needs love for its inspiration. And uh, we're going to see later on that only the gospel can actually produce that kind of love in us. Uh, but this, this is the first thing we see here. How, what sort of people should we be in this world? We should be people of love, people who realize that we have an obligation put on us to love every person we come across uh, in the way that God actually defines love. So that's the first thing. <clears throat> now, the second thing we see in this passage is that not only are we people not only are we to be people of love, but we are to be people of light. 
And uh, we see that in verses 11 to 14. Uh, It begins by saying, um, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now, when Paul talks about this day at hand, he's actually drawing on a very rich Old Testament theme, the theme of the day of the Lord. You see, the Old Testament prophets often spoke of this day that is coming in the future when the Lord himself would break into human history and when he would fix everything that's wrong with the world. Now, he will save his people, he will defeat his enemies, and he will restore creation to all of the glory that it was supposed to have. Now, uh, Ethan read about that in Isaiah 11, where it looks to this time when, when the Lord will come and, and creation will be restored so that even the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. And it's got a little a toddler playing with a snake, a poisonous snake, because there's no more harm. Everything will be restored. And that means when Paul says there in verse 11 that salvation is nearer now than when you first believed, He's actually talking about our future, final salvation. Now, when Jesus returns on that final day, when everything will be finished. And Paul says that that day, not only is it at hand, but the darkness. Well, he says the night is far gone. The night is far gone. And by that he means that with the first coming of Jesus, the light of that future day has actually broken in to the present age. And so with the resurrection of Jesus, the new creation that's coming has actually already begun. It started in his resurrection. And so what Jesus will complete at his second coming, it's already started, which means that when when we become followers of Jesus, we actually enter into that, that light. We enter into the new creation. Uh, Colossians 1 says that we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. And so right now we're living, as it were, in the overlap of the ages. You know, we're still in this present age that's characterized by darkness. But we belong to the age to come, characterized by light. That's what I mean mean early by dual citizenship. And one of the points um, Paul makes here is that that day to come, it's at hand. It's at hand. What does that mean? It means that Jesus could come back any moment. Uh, It's the next big thing on God's agenda. And, uh, well, none of us know when that will be. We don't know when it will be. There's no point trying to predict it. All that we know is that it is at hand. It's the next big thing on God's agenda. And therefore, it could be at any moment. It could be tomorrow, or it could be next week, or it could be a thousand years away. We don't know when it will be, but it's at hand, which means we're to be ready at all times. Uh, Every day is one day nearer. Now, because we know that, we're to be awake. That's what verse 11 says. The hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. See, we we shouldn't be sleepy people. We shouldn't be the equivalent of sleepwalking through this world. 
you know, asleep to the reality of God and asleep to the reality that, that Jesus is coming back at any moment. We've actually got to wake up. Now, what does it look like to be awake? Well, Paul goes on to explain in verse 12. Halfway through verse 12, he says, So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. So what are the works of darkness? The works of darkness is just any behaviour or any thoughts or any words that belong to the old life of being separated from God. Okay, it's just so whenever you live in a way that, that acts as if God isn't real, that's living according to the works of darkness. Uh, whenever we live just for here and now, as if here and now is all there is, we're living out works of darkness. And uh, this verse says we're to cast it off, cast off the works of darkness. And that word cast off, it's a violent word. It's like, um, you know, we're coming up to Christmas soon. And, you know, for some children, you give them a Christmas present. And they grab that paper and they tear it off violently to see what's inside. That's what it means to cast off the works of darkness. It's to, to treat it like that Christmas paper, you know, ripping it out, violently casting it off. And Paul actually gives us some examples of the kind of things he's talking about. Uh, in verse 13, he says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy. See, these are the things that we have to cast off. They don't fit who we are anymore. They belong to the old dark life, but we're now people of the light. Uh, and so that's, that's one thing we've got to do. We've got to tear off the works of darkness, but we've got to replace it with something. And so notice in verse 12, it was... Let us cast off the works of darkness. And what, what do we put in its place? Let us put on the armour of light. The armour of light. Why is it armour? Because we're in a battle. Right? We're in a spiritual war. The darkness of this world and the darkness that remains in our own hearts hates the light and fights against it, which means that if you're going to live the way Christ has saved us to live, it's never going to be easy while we exist in this present age. It's going to be a fight. It's going to feel like a war. You know, so if you want to live a self-controlled life, if you want to live a pure life, you'll find that it doesn't happen just by cruising. It doesn't happen just by coasting along. It can only happen by a fight because it's a battle. And if it's a fight, that means you need to have a battle plan which is what verse 14 goes on to talk about because it says make no provision for the flesh. And that word make no provision, it means literally to think ahead or to plan ahead. Okay, you to think very seriously about how you're going to avoid temptation, how you're going to overcome temptation when it actually strikes. And so, for example, let's just look at some of these things in verse 13. Uh, you know, it says um, we're to cast off uh, sexual immorality. And sexual immorality can take on all kinds of, of forms. Uh, one very common one is uh, that you might be um, someone who, who is falling into the trap of looking at things online that is literally killing your soul and making you sleepy in this world. Well, what have you got to do? You've got to wake up. 
You've got to declare war on that. Okay, you've got to cast it off, which means you're going to need a battle plan in how to do that. And the battle plan might be something as practical as just changing the room where you use your computer or your phone. Okay, it might be as something as practical as actually asking someone to help you, you know, help you work through that and, and to be able to, to change that situation. Uh, another one, verse 13 also mentions drunkenness. Now, if you've got a problem with drunkenness, again, wake up. Okay, it's a spiritual battle, which means you need a battle plan. And again, get accountability. Okay, don't keep alcohol in your house if it's a problem. Keep it out of reach. Uh, that's part of the battle plan. Or what about quarreling and jealousy? Again, that requires a battle plan. Because if there are people in your life that you struggle with, you know, you struggle getting along with, then you've got to get a plan together. You've got to think ahead. How are you going to interact the next time when they say something that gets under your skin? Okay, what's the plan going to be? How are you going to respond in patience? How are you going to live out your debt to love them when it's, a, a, when it's difficult, when you're tempted to quarrel? See, we are people who belong to the light. Okay, we're people who, who need to wake up and realize that every day is one day nearer to seeing Jesus face to face. And therefore, we are to be people not of darkness, but of light. We're to live as if we're already in the presence of Jesus. See, that's the unique thing about these verses. When verse 13 says, walk properly as in the daytime, it's actually saying, that we're to live as if we are already in the presence of Jesus. You know, we're still in the dark world, but we're to live as if we're in the light now. Right? But, but that means we're in a spiritual battle, and therefore we need to wake up, put on the armour of light, cast off those works of darkness, and walk properly as in the daytime. So there you go. We're to be people of love. We're to be people of light. But then you've got to ask, how do you actually do all that stuff? How can we be the, the, the kind of people that we're called here to be? Because for people who are inherently selfish, that debt of love just sounds impossible. And for people who are so prone to nodding off in the spiritual battle, how do we actually stay awake? How do we not just go back into snooze mode? See, this, what this passage says, it is very challenging. So how do we get the ability to do it? And the answer to that brings us to our third thing which we see in the passage, and that is we have to be people clothed in Christ. People clothed in Christ. So look at verse 14 again. It says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, this is the second time we're commanded to put something on. Right? We were commanded to put on the armour of light, but now we're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like Paul saying that the armour of light is actually a person. It's Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is that actually talking about? Well, it's helpful to read this in light of what's come before in Romans. 
See, back in Romans chapter 6, it says that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is united to Jesus. Okay, you're united to Christ. And one of the pictures that the Bible uses of our union with Christ is the picture of clothing. Okay, you've been clothed with Christ. Uh, and in Galatians 3.27, it says it directly. It says, for as many of you who were united to Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so here's the thing. If you're a believer, you, you have already put on Christ. Okay, you've already been clothed with Christ. That's something that God does to you at your conversion, and it doesn't change. It's a once-off permanent reality. You are clothed with Christ, which means in practice that whenever God looks at you, he sees you clothed in Jesus, which means he sees the perfect life Jesus lived and, and the sin-atoning death Jesus died. And the resurrection of Jesus, he sees that as all being yours. So when he looks at you, he sees you with all of the love and all of the acceptance that he has for his own dear son. Right? That's what it means to be clothed in Christ. It's the greatest thing in the whole world. It's the one, most wonderful thing ever. That's, that's the gospel. But now in verse 14 of the passage, Paul commands us to put on Christ. And so you've got this, this thing here where we, we are clothed with Christ, and, but now we're being commanded to clothe ourselves with Christ. So what, what's the go here? Well, now we can see what it means. What Paul is saying is what you already are in Christ, you're already clothed, he's saying you need to embrace that afresh in every moment of your life. Okay, Every day when you're tempted to fall back asleep, just to coast as if, as if this life is all there is. Okay, you need to wake up and embrace who you are in Christ. Embrace the fact that you are clothed with Christ and let that reality shape the way you live. And so to put on the Lord Jesus, it means to embrace who you are in Christ, but it also means to embrace who Christ is for you. It means to think about who Jesus is for you. And think about how he's gone to the cross to pay for your sin. That he's gone to the cross to set you free so that you can live for him. To, to clothe yourself with Christ, it means to consider his character, to consider his friendship, to consider his advocacy, to think about his titles. Now, king, saviour, prophet, priest. To think about his power, to think about his coming. See, all that Jesus is for you, put that on and let that shape the way you live. And do you know what will happen when you put on Jesus like that? All the sinful desires that we have will be absolutely suffocated out of your life. There will be no room for them because Jesus will just be everything to you. And that's what verse 14 is saying. So you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You can't overcome temptation without Jesus saturating your life. It's the only way. And that's where we find the strength to be the kind of people that Jesus has saved us to be. You know, we look at the, the debt of love that we owe to people, and it seems impossible, but when we remember 
how Jesus loved us, went to the cross and paid that infinite debt of sin that we had, when we realize he's done that for us, then that changes our hearts and makes us want to go out and love people, even if they're hard to love, because we know we've been loved while we were still sinners. See, putting on Christ, that's what enables you to be a people, people of love and people of light. And if that's the kind of people you are in this dark world, then that means Christians will be the best citizens in society. That's what we saw last week. You know, last week we saw how the gospel changes us to make us people who gladly submit to the legitimate authorities in our lives, which means in society we should be the best citizens. Well, here we see it again because the gospel transforms the way that we live, the way that we treat other people around us, the way we drive our car on the road, the way we talk to people on the phone in companies, the way that we work with others. See how the gospel transforms our lives so that we actually love others. We actually live uh, in a way that honors Christ. And therefore, we really should be the best citizens in society. See, every Christian in this dark world should be like a light, a light pointing to something greater to come and pointing to someone great who is coming. See, people of love, people of light, as we clothe ourselves in Christ. Now, this is why Jesus actually said, you are the light of the world. Okay? So in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in the street you live in, be who you are. Be people who are clothed with Christ. Be the light of the world. As Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, he's coming. The day is at hand. Live in light of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, have so much to give thanks for as we think about all of the wonderful truths in this passage. And most of all, Father, we thank you that you have clothed us with Christ. We know, Lord, that without Jesus, we would be lost forever that we would just be uh, continuing on in darkness, completely oblivious to the truth that you are God and that your Son is the Saviour and he is the King. And so we thank you, Father, that in your grace you have brought us to new life in Christ and that you have clothed us with his righteousness so that we can stand uh, as holy before you. And, Lord, what we are in Jesus, help us to embrace, help us to take this and live it out to be the people that Christ has saved us to be. We want to be light in this community. Okay, So many people in this world have no hope, no, no, nothing to look forward to, and yet we have something that we can offer them. We have Jesus. And so help us, Father, to live it out so that people look at us and they ask, why? Why do we live that way? Why do we seem to have so much love? And Lord, we pray that that would open up opportunities to tell them about the Saviour. Father, we also pray that where we do struggle to put the um, works of darkness to death, we pray that you would give us the ability to embrace uh, who we are in Jesus and that we would let uh, that just smother these things out of our lives. Uh, where we are stuck, Father, help us to seek help 
uh, that we can cast off these things, that we can be all that you've saved us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.